Sarah Nelson has served as the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, AFL-CIO, since 2014, currently serving her second four-year term. And she became a union member in 1996 when she was hired as a flight attendant at United Airlines. She has led her union's 50,000 members through a government shutdown and the terrible challenges of the coronavirus pandemic. Working through very different presidential administration, she's become a national voice for the labor movement. And I'm really delighted to have her on the program today as we talk uh, more about her work uh, and U.S. labor as we're focusing uh, on Labor Day. Uh, Sarah Nelson, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So it's a time when... uh, People have just been thrown into complete upheaval um, over the pandemic, and yet your uh, industry uh, is on the front lines. Uh, You're working, you're dealing with um, people who are trying to travel and wanting to get from place to place through this difficult time, and uh, you're also dealing with some people who are um, not wanting to comply with uh, the rules and uh, your your uh, union members are uh, really facing a challenge. Talk a little bit about the um, way that it has put a stress on a lot of workers and uh, some of those challenges they faced. Well, look, I couldn't be prouder to represent flight attendants. And first and foremost, I just want to say that they are helping to evacuate people from Afghanistan right now in very difficult circumstances, and they are always the first ones to raise their hands to help. Um, but this this pandemic has been uh, extremely challenging, certainly for aviation. This is the biggest crisis that aviation has ever faced in its 100 years of existence. Even if you were to put all the other crises combined together, this, is, this dwarfs that. Um, so what does that mean on the front lines? It means that Just like every other industry, uh, management has really pushed to get more productivity out of workers. So we went through a whole string of bankruptcies after 9-11, and that meant that we were making less. And so we lifted caps on what people could make, and we negotiated over overtime hours. And so many people, when those hours were cut back, took a 25 to 50 percent cut in pay just because those hours no longer existed. Demand for air travel fell off overnight by 97%. So immediately we were looking at the collapse of the entire industry, but flight attendants started to feel the brunt of this, even as we were first learning about coronavirus and still working on the planes and being on the front lines of this from the beginning. At the offset, we were able to get the proper uh, protective gear, PPE, um, but very quickly when this came to community spread in the United States, of course, we had uh, supply chain issues and manufacturing issues with moving all of our manufacturing out of the United States, and not even hospitals could get that gear. So we had to continue to go to work with um, what we could get on hand and be very concerned about what we might be bringing home to our families. Well, demand fell off 97 percent, the airline industry was still providing critical uh, connectivity to our communities. There were people who still had to travel uh, for an emergency for their families or for a medical emergency outside of COVID, or we moved critical personnel to places where there were hotspots. 
We also were a part of bringing a lot of the PPE and um, the ventilators from uh, overseas to make sure that we could treat people. And the U.S. mail, half the U.S. mail gets delivered on commercial aircraft. And so people who are waiting for their prescription drugs at home, more important than ever in a pandemic, if we had not been going to work, uh, that that whole system would have broken down. So we knew we had a critical role to play, but we were also going to work very concerned about what was happening with our own families and the risks we were taking on. And of course, we had uh, fellow flying partners who were very, very ill ending up in the hospital and also many who died. And um, so at the same time, we were concerned about our jobs. And the first thing we did in March was we recognized that there are people who will take advantage of a crisis and try to extract more from working people. And because of our experience after 9-11, we knew that if we didn't set the demands right away and make sure that the relief was defined as relief for the workers, that this would be another crisis that would be put on our backs. So we put forward a plan to Chairman DeFazio of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee in the House And we said there needs to be a payroll support program. The the government doesn't need to turn into an HR solution for the whole country and put everybody into the unemployment lines. Use the existing systems so that United Airlines 80,000 workers, for example, don't have to go to the government for assistance, but they can continue to get their paychecks and they can interface at one point with United Airlines. Use that payroll system. We can continue to pay taxes and pay into all of the, uh, the payroll taxes that support things like our Social Security checks later in life. So we wanted to keep everything going. And we also needed to keep airline workers connected to our jobs. So this payroll support program said that all of the money coming from the government had to be focused on the frontline workers' paychecks, on our health care and other benefits, keeping us in our jobs, no uh, reduction to our hourly rates of pay, and a ban on stock buybacks and a mm-hmm. cap on executive compensation for two years after this. And that's really important because you've got to take those pressures away because what executives will say during this time is there's going to be a brain drain. We're going to lose everybody. And so they start to argue that they have to pay people more in a crisis. And that gives more pressure on taking more from people on the front lines and giving it to the executives. And we never talk in this country about how the economy is hurt by paying a CEO more. We only talk about how the economy is going to be hurt if we raise the minimum wage or get more money to the front lines. So that was the program that we got. We fought really hard for it. And it was a tremendous success with the only exception that Congress allowed it to lapse from October 1st to the end of December. And we're seeing the continued results of that with people who fell out of their qualifications and not having enough staffing to meet the uh, demand that has come slamming back this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really was uh, enormous work and so meticulously done and, and, and such credit to you and everybody who worked on it. With regard to how we're seeing um, the, the stress uh, put on aviation workers, uh, you've noted uh, that, you know, after the 9-11 attacks and, and you referenced them a little while ago, that, you know, every single person who came on the plane was completely on our team. The country was together. They understood security measures. They understood uh, why they had to be inconvenienced. But now flight attendants have become, as you call them, punching bags for the public. Uh, The union released a national survey of nearly 5,000 flight attendants that found over 85% had dealt with unruly passengers, uh, some experiencing multiple incidents. Flight attendants have also become 
uh, put in this place of being public health monitors uh, and, 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 you know, that's made some of these people who don't want to follow the rules get angry at them. Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and some of the solutions that maybe we can have. Well, look, as a backdrop here, the, the other thing that was very difficult is that we're very used to taking on uh, communicable disease and doing our part to stop the spread. So we gained training in that. We fought very hard for the government to give us that training 10 years ago. Um, but for decades, we have worked on that. And we know that the first thing that you have to do in a crisis is get good information. And what did we have in this country instead? We had very conflicting information about this pandemic, about what to do to protect yourself. And it has been totally politicized, as have um, wearing masks, which are the single most helpful way to stop the spread of the virus. And so there's a national mask mandate that flight attendants have had to enforce. Uh, we didn't have that mandate from the government until Joe Biden became president. So before that, it was just policies of the airlines. And we were stuck on the front lines having to enforce these policies when some people were told that um, this was unnecessary or is infringement of their rights or um, whatever else. And so now our aircraft are full and there's no room to breathe. And whenever that situation happens, there's always room for uh, human conflict. But bringing also to the air airplane this, this idea that the public is in conflict with us as people who are on the front lines enforcing these rules to keep everyone safe. And, and some people have been told that this is... Um, this is uh, an, an effort to try to control them rather than uh, a mobilization to keep the entire country safe. So flight attendants have experienced an absolute backlash, but I'll tell you those mask issues are a flashpoint and they, uh, they make our job somewhat exhausting because we have to constantly remind people to put those masks on to make sure that if they're taking a sip or uh, taking a bite of something that they're taking that and then putting it back on. Um, so that there's very little time where they're exposed to other people. And, um, and, and we get constant pushback on that. So that's been exhausting, but then you add into it the, the real uh, disrespect and confrontational aspect that has uh, grown on our planes with a small group of people, but an emboldened group of people who have also become violent. One in five of those flight attendants who said that they've experienced these events in the last uh, six months say that they've experienced a physical encounter with a, a passenger, which is just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this has been a really, really stressful time for flight attendants. It's a job that we don't really recognize. And, you know, on the back end of this, there are some basic things that people have to do in order to be human, in order to live, like eating, sleeping, having shelter, um, and, and um, being able to uh, drink water. And so flight attendants actually are working longer days, wearing masks for 14, 15 hours themselves while enforcing it with other people who won't wear it for two hours. And then also getting shorter night's sleep and having a very difficult time getting food because many of the restaurants are closed down where we're laying over or in the airports, the concessions are not all back open again. So it's very difficult to get into a line quickly enough to get food. And all of these challenges make our jobs very difficult. And you can imagine what it's like when you have people griping at you and you haven't had proper sleep. It makes it much more difficult to do the job as well. 
Rolling into coronavirus, we also had staffing cut to minimum levels. So we don't have any extra bodies to spare to help us or to help with our de-escalation tactics that we use to calm these events down. So the job has become extremely challenging and a lot of stresses throughout the years, the year, just like everyone else. And um, on top of it, we're having to take self-defense training um, that are the classes that have been around since 9-11, but are being fully subscribed to right now because flight attendants need every help they, every bit of help they can to defend themselves in the air. Your union has been encouraging members to get uh, vaccinated, and uh, we're now seeing uh, airlines taking different actions, um, some imposing um mandates or requirements. Uh, the Association of Flight Attendants has been supportive of mandates, uh, but has continued to work with members who are working to request exemptions. United has instituted a, a pretty firm mandate. Uh, Delta has instituted a policy in which they will charge uh, $200 more in health insurance uh, fees to those who are unvaccinated. What are your thoughts on those? Well, so Delta um, doesn't only has the pilots union and the controllers union. So it's the least unionized uh, airline uh, in the industry. And this would never happen if there were more unions on the property at Delta. So I think that, you know, this is really flying in the face of the narrative that we need to have, that we're all in this together. The idea that you can pay for certain rights in this country, that capitalism applies to public health as well, um, is, is not a good one. It's not a good one for public health. It's not a good one for solidarity. And what are they saying? You get a choice if you can pay for it. I think it's sending the wrong message. And while they're attempting to encourage people or disincentivize people not to, who are not getting vaccinated to then change their minds, um, I think it's the wrong way of going about it. And it's, it's much better to have one standard, one standard of safety. That's what we experience in the airline industry is that you don't deviate from that. And certainly we are working with members who are applying for, um, for uh, exemptions that they, they can qualify for. But for the most part, we need to get the vast majority of the public vaccinated. And we need to encourage the fact that everyone has to do their part on that. If someone can buy their way out of it, it doesn't change the fact that the virus so can continue to live and mutate and put us all at risk. So the Delta policy, you don't you, you don't support uh, as much as, say, the United policy, which is a mandate that does allow for religious exemptions. So treat everyone the same, first of all. And second of all, um, it is uh, we think it's just a dangerous way to go about it, to put a price on public health. Right. What do you think about and I've advocated this and I've seen, you know, various uh public uh, officials, a former Homeland Security uh, uh, official advocating that um, the federal government mandate vaccines for all passengers uh, as well. Not only would we not see uh, a lot of people flying from hot spots and everywhere else uh, without a vaccine, but it would take a lot of the stress off of flight attendants too, because now people would have to be vaccinated and it would make it at least easier uh, in, in, you know, dealing with people who won't wear masks and whatnot. What are your thoughts of that? 
So my, my, our thoughts are that we would love to support something like that, um, but we don't have the infrastructure to actually be able to accomplish it. So this is this is being required by other countries. And you may have looked at some of the news around that, that people have to have mm-hmm. vaccination cards or a picture of that to be able to even go into a restaurant in some countries. And there's and there's some places like New York City that is requiring right. that. Um But there is not an infrastructure in this country to confirm those vaccination cards uh, like has been set up in other countries. Uh, And so I want to make sure that whatever policies we're putting forward are actually going to work. Um, The fact that we still have the mask mandate is helping to keep everyone safe. And let's be real. I mean, children have not even had access to the vaccine yet. We're going to, for the first time, we'll have two to 12 year olds who can get it um, this September. But but infants can't get it. All these people are on our planes. So we're looking at one level of safety. And while. Uh, in theory, uh, that sounds great, and we would love to be able to support it. We also are just very practical about what's going to work. And unfortunately, we don't have the infrastructure in this country to make that work in aviation right now. Um, that's mm-hmm. not to say that we shouldn't be working for that, uh, but we don't have it right now. Mm-hmm. When people think about uh, the AFL-CIO, they... Um probably often imagine a male-dominated blue-collar labor movement. Uh, You've brought a a, a new progressive energy, uh, also as a woman who is leading. Tell us more about the diversity of the AFL-CIO and how you and other women have become more involved in driving it. I, I think that as women have joined the workforce, women are um, women are problem solvers and women are people who uh, really uh, I often will say that that we have been dismissed and marginalized and some of the ways that we're marginalized. And I've heard this more times than I can count. You know, women are too emotional. In fact, actually, uh, our career was started as flight attendants because Ellen Church, who was a pilot, wanted to be a commercial pilot and approached uh, United Airlines to be one. And they said, no, women are too emotional to be in the cockpit. So instead, she said, well, then why don't we have women in the cabin to take care of the businessmen who are getting (laughs) sick? So essentially, so that women can take care of the emotional men in the back. Um, But I I will often say to women, listen, don't let someone tell you that your emotions are a weakness. Your emotions are your superpower um, because women are driven to fight with those emotions. And what it really means when we um, when when we cherish that and recognize that it means we're going to fight like hell for the people that we love. And I think that's the spirit that you see rising up in the labor movement and coming into leadership because we just don't accept that there can there can't be an answer. And because we've had to be creative, um, generally as marginalized individuals in, in this society, oftentimes we lead without ego and have a lot more creativity. And so women make great leaders. And you're starting to see that as more and more women are filling up the workforce. But what we have to do, and and you're seeing it in strike activity too. Where are you seeing the strikes? You're seeing mostly women-led unions that are striking. The teachers, uh, the grocery workers, Mm -hmm. right? And um, the nurses uh, who are on strike right now at, at the end of COVID, striking for safe patient staffing, by the way. Those are people who are striking with absolute heart, right, for their community. Mm. Um, 
And so I think you're going to see more and more women rising up and taking their place. And I encourage women to come forward. You know, we're very used to saying if someone else is willing to do it, we'll be there to support. But women have to understand that they are great leaders. They can lead. And when they uh, take their rights as union members, we also erase all the inequality because union women make more than non-union men in the same job. So this is a way for women right now, even when the legislators have failed us and the courts have failed us, this is a way for women right now to claim our equal place in society. And and yet uh, a lot of women um, see the sexism out there and may feel like I I don't want to deal with that. Talk a little bit about that, because you have dealt with sexism both on the job as a flight attendant in the halls of power with policymakers. And um, you've you've experienced it and navigated it uh, as as all women can. Yeah, I mean, sexism is real and it is definitely um, not about sex. It's about power. And uh, women are, um, there's an attempt to just not even see us in the room. And so we have to claim our space. We have to stand up and take it. And um, absolutely in the labor movement, uh, we experience this as well. And so we've got to we've got to fight through it. But if more women organize and claim their rights as union members, this world will be a different place, mm-hmm. uh, because as union members, you gain rights that you don't have. If you're not one, you gain rights on the job. You make your employer have to meet you um, at, at the table and have to hear your demands and, and negotiate with you. I mean, think about how empowering that is. Uh, for women who have not only um, not necessarily been in great jobs, but also been paid less in those jobs. And um, so this is really the answer to that. And we have to spread the word like crazy that this is where people can get this relief. Unions are very popular in this country, just like Universal healthcare is very very popular in this country. So why isn't that translating into the policy that's created? It's because we don't have enough people at the table who are representing um, those those ideas and what we need. And so as we encourage more women to step forward and be leaders, the more that we're going to see a shift in the demands and the policy that's created around that. I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Richard Trumpka passed away uh, suddenly this summer, uh, enormous uh, legacy as the president of the AFL-CIO during a a time when unions really were under attack. Uh, You've commented on his legacy and the need to push for more union power and and what uh, he did to inspire you. Talk a little bit about that. Look, um, you know, it's very sad, very sad. that uh, Rich is gone. But when I think about Richard Trumka, I um, think about the conversations that I had with him around what he loved and what he loved is being president of the United Mine Workers and he loved his union. And the AFL-CIO is a federation, a place where you bring all the unions together and you promote the idea that we're all in this together, which is absolutely true. It's important to lead on that. But I think that um, what I take away from Richard Trumka's career is uh, the fighting spirit, the strikes that he led um, as a United Mine Workers president, the um, very uh, big shoulders that he stood on of the early uh, mine workers presidents who actually uh, were the catalyst of organizing the entire labor movement. The United Mine Workers are uh, the union that led the CIO and conducted 
incredible organizing that organized millions of workers and started the great unions like the United Auto Workers of America and communication workers and steel workers. And so they built our labor movement and, and his legacy is that legacy. That's what I think of, but I think of his union and how it started and that it started with a bunch of immigrants who were mistreated and were put together in a workplace because the boss hoped that they wouldn't be able to talk to each other because they spoke different languages. And so I think about where he came from and what he knows about what union busters will do to divide and to delay any results and distract people and try to demoralize and get workers beaten down uh, to think that they should be happy just to have a job, not a job that's enough uh, for a living wage and a secure retirement and health Healthcare for their families. Um, and, and that's what I think. And, and that's what we have to claim is that that spirit that um, gave Richard Trumka the desire and inspiration and actually the very, you know, inspirational way that he led that catapulted him to that national mm-hmm. position to be the lead spokesperson for the labor movement. And we have to do what wasn't done during the time that there was this idea that there could be labor peace. There always has to be the recognition that there's going to be struggle, especially in a capitalist society, because there's going to be this constant attempt to try to turn workers into a line item rather than recognize that workers are the entire engine of the whole economy. And as Walter Ruther said to Henry Ford when they were looking at new automation in the auto plants, and Henry Ford said to Walter Ruther, the the president of the the auto workers, uh, Walter, how are you going to get these computers to pay union dues? And Walter Ruther very astutely turned to Henry Ford and said, Henry, how are you going to get the computers to buy your cars? So um, we need each other. We need innovation. We need um, we need companies. We need business, but we need strong workers too in order to make the entire economy work. And that's what I think of when I think of Rich Trunka's legacy, where he came from, all that he embodied as president of the AFL-CIO coming out of the United Mine Workers of America. And I think we need to go back to those roots and recognize that the labor movement is everyone. It's not just a club. It's all working people. And we have some big issues to take on together. So we've got to open our arms wide to every uh, every working person and welcome them into this movement. Absolutely. Uh, and, and really just uh, great having you on the program. I, I know a lot of people have followed your work. I've certainly admired uh, what you've done. And uh, a lot of people uh, will certainly um, really be inspired by uh, what you're saying, and as as we focus on Labor Day uh, and 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 labor uh, in this country, so important to um, speak about all of these issues. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much. It's been great. Sarah Nelson is the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants (CWA AFL CIO). Follow her on Twitter at Flying with Sarah S A R A Flying with Sarah.